uh, Will Galloway with Ian McMillan, Frogger, uh, novelist, football yes. fan. Uh, he just released his first book, The Boy with the Fawn in His Side. How are you, Ian or Frogger? I'm, I'm either or, I don't mind me. I've been called Frogger since primary school days, so I'm familiar with both, so either or whatever suits you. So you're, you're from the West, uh, where, where about in Lanarkshire? Well, I originally was brought up in a, a kind of village just near Hamilton called uh, Stonehouse, which yeah. is near Larkhall. Larkhall's pretty infamous in Scotland, I suppose. So we went to secondary school Larkhall, so that was kind of my background and upbringing for that area, but I moved into Hamilton 20 odd years ago, you know. So he kind of like when, what year were you born? Because that gives you an indication, or me an indication, of what time you came. 73 I was born. I was born in okay. 73, so I was 52 weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. So when you were coming through at school, what, what was your, your first musical kind of like uh, appreciation? For me, when I was, I'm talking about primary school here, right? Like the, the latter end of primary school, when stuff like that becomes kind of important to you. My biggest influence would be the band Madness, for sure. I was kind of obsessed with Madness for a young age. And for Madness, obviously getting into the kind of other two-tone bands and the specials and Bad Manners and the selector and the beat and all that kind of stuff. So that was the first sort of scene I was ever into, as much as I knew about it as an 11-year-old or whatever it was. So that was my first introduction in music and fashion and the importance of that kind of stuff, which kind of started it for me. I remember, like, when I was that age, taking pictures of songs into barbers and asking the guy to cut my hair, like, songs and all that kind of stuff. And wearing Fred Perry's and DMs and all that kind of thing. And I, I loved that whole thing when I was really young. Where, where were you getting your clothes from then? I don't know, probably at that age, Days of Throngate would probably where we would get Fred Perry's and stuff like that from, but... Yeah. Probably market stalls and stuff like that back then, if I'm honest, you know what I mean? We'd probably go to Ing Ingolston Market, yeah. Ingolston Market and get Levi's or Harrington's or that kind of stuff, do you know what I mean? So, um, I don't remember there being a massive hunt for clothes at the time. You probably had an item and you were quite content for a while. Yeah. That kind of changes life and on a wee bit, but you're probably quite happy with a couple of Fred Perry's or Harrington, Perry yeah. DMs or Monkey Boots probably they've been back then. Yeah. Um, and that was the kind of look, probably looked like a wee rude boy type thing. Uh, but you probably knew very little about the kind of background of the scene or yeah. the roots of it all that. You just liked the music. The music was fun to bounce about in and you thought songs looked pretty cool. So that was yeah. the kind of start of it. But they're, they're kind of like the whole two-tone thing kind of like lasted over a few years before that dissipated and uh, broke up. You know, so what, what followed after that? Well, I was kind of thinking this. I don't know if because I came from a village, fashion moved a bit slower, right? Yeah, yeah. That's probably a factor. There's probably yeah. guys hung on to certain scenes for longer than it did elsewhere. Yeah. Then they probably move on as quick. So when I was really young, when I was a kid, the guys were a bit older than me. There was quite a few punks in the area. Like yeah. my mates, older brothers would be punks. And one or two more. But after that, it was the jam for me, right? And that probably doesn't fit in very well with the timeline, but just in my where I discovered it, I yeah. probably just discovered the jam starting secondary school. Yeah. So when I started secondary school, it was probably somebody gave me snap at the time. You knew all the big hits of the jam, and then you started seeing the other jam stuff. Yeah. But for me, I never really became a mod, though, because my generation, when I hit first year at secondary school, looked... If you remember our time growing up, starting secondary school was dead tribal. I remember yeah. it turning up at secondary school and everybody was a something. Everybody was a mod or a punk or there'd have been a couple of guys in the Smiths. There'd have been a couple of goths. Everybody yeah. seemed to identify with a certain tribe or another. Anybody who was anybody. And mods were a really big thing at our school. Do you know what I mean? There was loads of mods at our school. So this was kind of deemed to be the cool thing for the cool kids. Whereas the guys that were into kind of heavy metal seemed to be a bit scruffy lot, I feel like, right? I was with the other side of the coin, we like the heavy metal kind of guys. Yeah. So the mod thing was, Paul Weller was deemed to be the 
the the the coolest thing since sliced bread, Joe. Do you know what I mean? Everybody loved Paul Weller at a dead early age. Yeah. And he kind of showed the bones of dressing well and where the music came from, how that connected. But for me, the mod thing was probably kind of fading out and becoming old hat, just as I'm hitting secondary school. So yeah. maybe about second year, the casual thing was coming in then. And yeah. for me, it seemed like casual was the new mod. I always kind of see a big connection between casuals and mods. Although some of the lifestyles are a bit different, right? I always see the casuals have just been the mods of my generation. We're just young guys who wanted to dress well. Where the latest looks, the latest labels, and be modernists, if you like. Casuals are effectively modernists in their era. And I always see that was that. So mod suddenly became an old fashioned thing. It became kind of, it was old hat. And I suppose the thing with casual as well, see the, the introduction to casual, because everybody was wearing pastel colours and bright trainers and white trainers, it was so much more. Colourful and vibrant than mod. Mod was dead black, white, green, parka, that kind of thing. Yeah. So casuals seem to be modern and a bit more, I don't know, new wave, if you like. Do you know what I mean? It just seemed to be a bit more interesting and a bit more something to be sought out, whereas mod was in the past suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, it's kind of like, because uh, so I think I, I, the term, because I was thinking about it the other day, when I moved to Manchester in the, in the middle of 83 and uh, I saw City play for a season with my mates in Burnage and uh, nobody called themselves a casual. You know, it, it wasn't a term, you know, it, it was kind of like, it, it didn't have a name, you know, the, 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 mm. the whole, because it got explained to me, you know, when I was there that the whole Perry Boy thing came 79, 70, uh, 1980 and then just disappeared, you know, and then it, 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 everybody, everybody dressed in sports gear, and you know, kind of like in in a what would be become known as say casual, but nobody called themselves a casual. You know? I think the casual thing was very much a Scottish term. I know yeah. a lot of guys down south they didn't call themselves casuals. They were yeah. football lads, or they might have been a dresser, or they had a different term for it. But yeah. the, the term casual thing very synopsis with Scotland. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be so popular down south. They'd be aware of the term, but yeah. it wasn't used as as day to day. Up here, just a casual. That was it. Yeah. Um, that, that was a term, but I think the thing with casual as well was what you're unaware of when you're that young. There was a wee bit of evolution that you were probably unaware of. Like you say, the Perry Boys existed before that. And yeah. obviously, the, there was a thing going in Liverpool where the sports world was coming in a bit more. And obviously, it's, it's universally agreed that the Scousers were probably the catalyst for the whole thing kind get of, for everybody, really. But when I think it's on that casual DVD where Powell Hewitt talks about when you look at the Jamaicans, they're wearing like the Yardicardies, Farah Slacks and that stuff. And there's bits been kind of stolen and evolved for there and it's became something in their ladies. It didn't just happen overnight, do you know what I mean? There'll be some boys, some of that wedge haircut and all that, and it's been kind of my pie picks has came in and it's evolved into this thing called casual. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see... I can see photographs from some of my mates from the mid seventies where they're wearing Lacoste and looking in a, a, a the term casual for for want of a, a, a better word. So it, it was definitely happening in London as well at the same time. You know, it's kind of like mm. just that finding you know the uh, sportswear or, or or brands that kind of like had, had a, a bit of became a bit. Bit elusive to find, you know. Not everybody was wearing them, you know. So it, 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 I think London were doing it as well, but in in a different way to to people in Liverpool or people in Manchester. But I think the kind of culture shock of the whole time for me was how expensive it was in comparison to previous looks. Yeah. People kind of take that for granted now because you can kind of buy what you want, where you put the cash of gold, you got a credit card, or whatever it might be, eBay, all that stuff. But back then, I remember if we were wearing, I don't know, Stay Press and Fred Perry's, and suddenly the next look you want to get is a feeler, or you want to get a, a Pringle jumper. It was triple the price, four times the price in previous look. So you look at some items and think, God, how am I going to get that? So weeks wages for my dad, some of that stuff, you know? Yeah. So you had to kind of be committed to getting the money, because back then, you were a school kid. So you had to yeah. get a milk round or you had to get a paper job or whatever and try and get some savings on the go, try and get what you needed. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But it's kind of like, because my, I, 
you know, I, I have a checkered history with Scottish football. You know, kind of like when I, when I moved up there, it never really caught me. So I, I never never really followed anybody. But I, I my, my knowledge is that kind of like Motherwell were quite early on in getting into casual wear. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if you were to look at the letters in Sounds or or the the dresses book that uh, they did, you know that that. There, there was something happening in Motherwell that might not have been happening in other towns or cities in Scotland at that time. Because I, I specifically remember going to the first game in the season at, at Ibrox and uh, I kind of like, there's no other casuals there. You know, and I remember mm-hmm. some lad coming over and talking to me because I had a, a, a Lacoste polo shirt on, you know, and it, it was dressed quite similar. So, it, it, you know, there was obviously some of the people at Rangers, but Rangers didn't have anybody at that that particular time, you know. But you could see it growing, you know, as the uh, as the time went on, you know, they, they attracted more and more people dressed in similar the, the similar fashion. You know, there was um, Mother were apparently the second school in Aberdeen were the first all part of them. We were next, but there was a lad from Mother who moved to Leeds for a period as school kid, and yeah. he moved back up. And he picked up this look for down south. Yeah. Steph, his name is right. So Steph came back. It's yeah. a well-known folktale with Motherwell. Everybody knows that Steph kind of brought the look back for Leeds, giving Motherwell the heads up really on this new fashion that was happening. So yeah. quite soon all his school chums kind of converted overnight to the bleach jeans and Puma G Villas and Patrick Windbreakers and all that sort of stuff. So the look kind of evolved. There's maybe 10, 15 young boys way at the time. Yeah. And it kind of grew arms and legs quite quickly in Motherwell. So yeah. I don't know why it is in Motherwell which became such a big thing. I mean, I don't just mean the size of the mob but the football or the reputation model or the like That whole look throughout the whole town is just so massive compared to anywhere else. When I look at the comparison in Motherwell compared to other cities, I mean, Motherwell's only a town remember, do you know what I mean? We're in a wee town in comparison to other city clubs. Yeah. I've had such a big impact on the casual culture. Do you know what I mean? It's really kind of stuck with glue in Motherwell, the whole casual thing. But it's kind of like, so when, when did football become a thing for you? See, I wasn't, really, I wasn't a football fan when I was a kid, really. No, any big way, I mean, like, football wasn't my thing. There was a guy at school. See, for me, I remember I remember going back to school after the Christmas holidays one time, and there was all these kids getting on the school bus who were a year or two older than me, with Nike windbreakers, jumbo cords, maybe Puma G Villas or Trim Trouble on their feet. I was like, what's this? Thing, they're all wearing the same jacket and all that, and they were the casuals apparently, right? I mean, I'm like 11 or 12 at the time, yeah. and I knew a few of them, looked to know them, and pretty soon a lot of people started copying the look, like the Pringle jumper, the Leland Scott jumper and cords and all that kind of stuff, kickers, that kind of was quite early on. So people were wearing that stuff. But one of the lads was going to Motherwell, his family was from Motherwell, he supported Motherwell, and there was yeah. a cup game coming up, and he was taking a bus to Tencastle. And I think he was just trying to get bums on seats really and try to fill his bus. And he asked me if I wanted to go to this match with him. So I just got walked in and got this match. And I just really enjoyed going to the game that day. I just loved the whole buzz of being at the football. I'd only been to Scotland games before that. Yeah. And the match was a draw. So it was a replay the following week at Fur Park. So I asked him, can I come with you guys to Fur Park next week for the replay? And yeah. I went to Fur Park the next week. And for there on in, I just tagged along with him for the next six or seven years to every match. Because yeah. uh, I was about two or three years older than you know. So yeah. that's kind of how it started for me. Yeah, because I, I I love football. I think I might have said on on a message I I love football. Moved to Scotland seventy eight, and I went to three football matches, Tynecastle twice, one to see Middlesbrough play my team, and and in the pre-season match, and uh, I went to Ibrox. Ibrox the game before that. I just found the football not as good as the, the standard of football I'd been watching, and I, it just put me off of watching, and also. Being in Livingston at that point, when you're 11, it's not that easy to get on a... It wasn't easy to... There was no trains. So you couldn't just go into Edinburgh and, you know, watch Hibs or Hearts play. And you couldn't go across to Glasgow easy, you know, like you could later on. So I I just... I never... I never picked a team. I never never started following anybody when when I was in Livingston, you know. And it put me off. Of going to watch football, I'd, I'd see a few games, but it it it, it wasn't the, uh, the the most important thing of, of my life. And I, I think if I'd have been, if we'd have moved to Edinburgh straight away, or or 
to Livingston or, or sorry to to Glasgow or Motherwell, and then I might have picked a team and kind of like got into it. But it, it seems to be a bit distant from actually following a team. And uh, you know, I think I think you support your local team, and Livingston at that point didn't have a local team. Yeah, you know, well, Motherwell would have been our local team, but. I think looking back now, it can open my world up. A lot yeah. of people might think that the whole casual thing, getting involved in it because of the football violence type thing, is a as a negative path to go down when you're a kid. But for me, it wasn't like that. I was like, yeah. it made it aspirational because suddenly I want to wear upper class clothing labels, and I'm going to shops I shouldn't really be going into, and I'm mixing places I shouldn't be going. And because we came from a small village. I'm then making friends in a bigger town, Motherwell. I'm making all these new mates in Motherwell. We got accepted in with the nucleus of the guys in Motherwell. So it opened my world up a lot. And it, I mean, you're seeing the whole of Scotland through school because you're going to Glasgow, Edinburgh, Dundee, Aberdeen, Falkirk, etc. And you're getting to see a bit of the country as well, where other yeah. lads in my class at school might not have been doing that at the weekend. You know what I mean? They don't have stayed in their wee area. Yeah. So the football made my world a lot bigger. And that, that's, you know, talking about your, your book, that, those are the central themes of the book, which is football, fashion, uh, music, drink and drugs. Yeah. And your your experience and uh, realisation of, uh, of of maybe how you should be living your life and what, what's good and what's bad for you, you know? Yeah. So, well, see, when I, when I wrote the book... I kind of just thought it for a bit of fun for myself during lockdown. Yeah. I don't know if that's my bit of idea of fun, but it was a pastime, really. Yeah. I just, I've always kind of battered away at the keyboard when I've been kind of stuck for something today. I've wrote bits and bobs of poems. I've wrote tiny bits of stories and stuff like that, but I never actually stuck waiting and wrote a whole story or anything. Yeah. So the lockdown gave me the luxury um, of writing a bit more. And I was working for home, so my laptop was always sitting here. I'd also a bit of time work was a bit quiet and I would just add to it a bit. And I kind of got hooked on it. I got quite a good buzz on it, especially when I went back when I thought, God, that looks all right. I didn't know where somebody was coming from. Stuff would just flowed out of me. So I kind of went and uh, as I was writing it, I would get a kind of bit of theme in my mind where I would think, well, let's look back and see how my mindset was when I was a kid. Yeah. That stuff we're talking about. What was I obsessive about when I was really young? Was that the same as everybody else? Was did everybody else feel obsessive about madness? For example, we start way. Did everybody else crave the clothes the way I did? And I can see I had a certain kind of mind pattern that others might not have. And then I looked at the cultural differences in Scotland in particular. And I don't think I realised a lot of this stuff till I started travelling a bit more. Like when you're young, you go, you go to Spain, you go to Ibiza, or whatever it might be, and you're just going there to get pistol and get mad with it for a bit. But when I started Drinking, I started going to other places. I noticed a big difference in culture. Like, at least one of my favourite places to go to. And the difference in Italian drink culture in Scottish is like Nick Day, right? They just don't, don't drink the same way people did in Scotland. So it was kind of like, what choices have you got when you're 13 or 12 and you're standing yeah. on a park and a graveyard drinking when all your friends are doing it? That's yeah. kind of a cultural, a cultural experience that you're kind of pushed into that age because you're not going to stand up in the face of that kind of peer pressure and say, no, I'm not doing it. I'm going yeah. to concentrate on a mere positive path. You're going to go along with everybody else. It's dead important when you're young to have a connection with a group or a tribe, which is why people pick casual or mod or skinhead or whatever it might be, and there's a sense of belonging there. Again, you're kind of totally aware of that when you're a kid, do you know what I mean? But yeah. you only know with the gift of hindsight that you want to belong to some. Yeah. And that's probably where you start off. Right, drinking becomes the norm, and then obviously drugs come into the equation when you're maybe a little bit older, yeah. and it goes on for there, really. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be you know, alcohol was at the age of 13, 14, just part of norm, something you aspired to. You know, it's kind of like we, mm. we did a school disco on a Friday night, and we'd all get drunk before. You know, and then I'd start, you know, having a drink on a Monday night, going to the pub and uh, drinking around in some friends' houses, and you, you, you then, you then get into that culture. And the, 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 the alcohol culture in Scotland's quite, quite strong. You know, drinking alcohol is quite strong. You know, and it, it, if, like you said, in comparison to Italy, where alcohol is not the, uh, the be all and end all, and they probably respect it a bit more than 
British people thing, you know, Scottish people. The last time we were in Italy, me and my mate were sitting outside the inn. There was two Italian guys with workies with high-vis vests on sitting next to us. Finished their work for a bit of lunch, and they're having a pasta, and then they're having a beer. And then you really bring these wee liqueurs at the end, and they have their wee liqueur, and then they're like, back to work. I think, God, if I was in Scotland, day two guys would probably be in the dancing with their fucking rigging boots on at three in the morning. It would just be a different scenario. Yeah. Well, but that, that's... I just seem to look at alcohol, the way we take coffee sort of thing. They have a yeah. couple of drinks and socialise. See, I, I've always been able to... If, 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 if I start drinking, I want to have more than three, four drinks. So I'd rather, if I was just going out for midweek, just have some waters or some fruit juice. And yeah. not drinking any alcohol because there's you know been numerous times where I'd have one, then I'll have another one, and then I have another one, and then you know you're, you're six, seven pints in, and then you got to go to work the next day, and it's never conducive to a work life trying to do work with a, a hangover, you know, mm. trying to hide but, the, your, your bosses. I think when you you're young, but when you buy into that kind of thing, where you get drunk on Friday and Saturday night, it's not really up for question. Yeah. The alternative, you know, drinking Friday and Saturday night just seems boring in comparison thereafter. Yeah. And then yeah. if you can sneak a sneaky one in on a Thursday or Wednesday or whatever, you try and do that as well. And you, yeah. you don't really realise you've developed a mindset where down time and fun revolves about alcohol. So yeah. I, mean, I think the initial stages that it is fun. Let's not be kidding, it is fun. It is good times when you're a young, young guy you're drinking. Yeah. Even stuff that you're going up to that's probably no that positive. It's just a good laugh and your young boys will be boys. But I think the nature of it kind of starts taking free you. The older you're getting, the more you're doing it. You don't realise it's creeping up on you. But well, for, for me, certainly. Yeah. yeah, I always found alcohol was a, a social thing. You know, I, I, I drank alcohol because I was with friends and, you know, it, it relaxed me and it relaxed all of us, I suppose. You know, and it, it, mm. was, it was chatty. And then I, I went to university when I was 24 and I played for the uh, the, the football team. And they had these football socials, and it was all about speed drinking. And I've never speed drank in my life, you know, because like I said, it was all about social. It wasn't about drinking as fast as you could, you know, and they were drinking just to get pissed. And I, I never, ever, you know, from the age of 13, drank just to get pissed. It was more, like I said, for a social thing because you you were with your friends or, or yeah. whatever age they were, you know. I think that's the difference. So I think some of are able to have a few drinks to enjoy alcohol as a social lubricant that it is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And others, guys like me, when I start drinking, I can't stop Yeah. Yeah. So there is there is a difference there on how it's affecting different people. And I can see Dead Quill and Women Company through sober eyes. The one or two guys are like me. Yeah. They're probably drinking faster at their bar now. They're getting drunker and they just find it very difficult to go home when they start. Um, and that starts covering a bit of problems in your life and you probably get to your late 20s when responsibility becomes a wee bit more important or your mental health's been a wee bit more affected by it when you're younger, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I think there is a bit of difference between how alcohol affects an individual. Yeah. So going, going back to the, the book, if you started it in lockdown, did you have a structure before you started or was it a collection of short stories that built up into a, a book? Well, I, I kind of winged it, if I'm honest, straight. I, I kind of yeah. winged it because I, I didn't know. I didn't have a grand game plan that I was going to bring it out. I did it for myself, and it was only till the latter stages here it kind of took shape and became something. But I kind of look back. What I would say is the character Frankie in the book, I made it fictional because writing it as me being an autobiography, was, for one, it was too personal. Yeah. And two, I don't think my life deems an autobiography right I don't think I'm that important I don't think it's that exciting however there is some stuff happening in my life that's probably worth documenting where yeah. I put down the stuff about childhood and then I kind of documented some of the fashion aspects we spoke about I put about the the start of the whole football casual thing and the the progress throughout the rave scene but what yeah. I wanted to, to document that my thing behind that was let's look at drink as a young man how drink progresses and moves into pop, pop culture when did it change for me? And then for me, when I was 16, when cannabis came on the scene, I took that like a doctor water the same way I did with drinks. So some guys would turn up at the weekend with a bit of hash for the last week. They would mainly be smoked the next day. 
and I'm noticing there was a difference with me, some people, do you know what I mean? I yeah. didn't have an off switch with a lot of that kind of thing. And yeah. then through the rave stuff, and then I wanted to put it where the mental health was deteriorating, and obviously there's a big part of the book goes into recovery, and about self-discovery thereafter. So I was just kind of evolving, I was writing it, and I was just looking at my own life path, really. I would yeah. say probably about 80% of the books is true. There's yeah. some bits I made up because it fitted the story better. Um, yeah. It just came to mind as I was writing it. But yeah. like some of the stuff putting up, there's a bit in it where I, the mother will visit Easter Road. That's just it's a true story, really. I just put the guy's fictional character. Many a guy at the football said to me, remember that day, Hibs guys I met last week, they said they were there as well. So yeah. that stuff's just true. I just documented bits, but I made it fiction. Um, most of it's just true. Except yeah. I think the, the good thing about being a fictional character is it takes the personal element out of it when you're writing some of the gut churning stuff about childhood and all that. It made it yeah. easier. Yeah. And also you can make the guy a bit more extreme than you. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't need to be you. But yeah. you can make it you can play a bit a bit easier. I just found it a bit easier to write to that perspective. Yeah. Did, did you do uh, literature, English at school? Did you were you, were you good at school? In general, I was probably an average student. I was probably always looking out the window or too interested in being the class clown and impressing people with jokes and stuff like that for Morris. But English is the one subject I would say I was interested in. And I, yeah. I did excel at English. That was probably the only one, though. But I probably had a genuine interest in it. I'm yeah. a kind of character, if I've no got an interest in some, I find it quite boring. I don't take it in. But if I've got an interest in some, I'm kind of obsessive about it. Do you know I mean yeah. like certain bands I've been through music, certain stuff I've been into, I've been into all my life, yeah. and I, I would know everything about it. So if I'm passionate about it, I'll know everything about it, and I'm in it. So English sounds a bit like that. I really like literature. I didn't yeah. realise this at school. I really like literature. I started reading when I was quite young, and I've never stopped reading. Yeah. What I love about music is the lyrics. I love song lyrics. When I was younger, yeah. before the internet. I would always try and work out what the song lyrics were and what they meant with that. So obviously you're young, there's certain words and songs you've never what they mean. You get the dictionary and stuff like that, try and work it out. And I always yeah. liked that aspect of it. So that's always something I've been into. I've definitely always liked that. So yeah, I, I've always had a thing for Scottish writers. I, I can't I can't put it into an equation, but you know, I, I, obviously I, I like Irving. Alan Warner's uh, uh, a genius. Duncan McLean, when he was writing, you know, always did good, interesting books. And uh, Golden Legs, uh, cheeky books were were, were quite good. Mm. But so there's always been a a, 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 a full affair of Scottish writers doing interesting novels, you know. So it, it's kind of like it's. I suppose it's a a Scots a, a strong tradition that you're continuing, you know. Well, you know, the first book I ever read through choice when I left school was the, the Aberdeen guy, Jay Allen, wrote a book called Bloody yeah. Casuals. I don't know if you remember. I was yeah. about 16 when that came out. And somebody yeah. gave me this book. And it was about like the time of 16, but reading a book through choice rather than because the teachers told you to read it. Yeah. So when I got that book, I remember reading it in like two days, right? It's not a very big book. I remember reading it in two days. Yeah. And I just, I was really interested in the casual thing at the time. And he, he, he'd done it in local dialect and I just found it dead interesting. He spoke to the mother one and all that kind of stuff. And that got me hooked on reading. But as you say, Irving Welsh came out probably the early 90s, I would imagine, when Spotting came out and Acid House and that kind of stuff. And yeah. when that was kind of made known to me, reading stuff like that was kind of groundbreaking for loads of people from my generation. Yeah. Because he spoke local dialect, he told stories about places he knew. And Irving's also, obviously, got a great imagination, but he's also got the balls just to say what's in his head, really. Yeah. Which a lot of people wouldn't. You're making yourself quite vulnerable. You're doing a lot of stuff like you're because you're putting some of your internal world into the public domain. So, yeah. and he does, he's not afraid to do it. Some of the obscure stuff he does. Yeah. And I think that gave a lot of people, go them into one reading, but it gave a lot of people the courage to write as well. Yeah. And I yeah. think he's a big influence on everybody, you know what I mean? I think so. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy writing. You know, and kind of like if people think that it, you can just start writing and then suddenly you've got a, a novel at the end of the day, it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of dedication and uh, determination and uh, distancing in relationships of uh, I need a, a bit of time to do some writing, you know. Because yeah. um, when I was at school, 
I remember I, I I always had kind of like you know good literature reports. Went to high school in Livingston, and uh, the teacher that we had, I remember the first class or the second class after passing in some handwork, he just rubbished it, you know. And I kind of like from that point onwards, I didn't do any work for four years because. And I, and I realized it, it was a personal thing, whether it was against me or whether it was against my dad, it, it, it was, you know, for, for whatever reason. It, and I kind of like, you know, it, it's, it, it disheartened me from writing for quite a bit, you know, because, you know, it's for, I think when you become teachers or if you're a teacher, you're there to encourage kids and, uh, you know, try and push them into the right mm-hmm. direction. You know, so it wasn't, even though I did write, it wasn't until, you know, I much later on when, uh, you know, I started taking it a bit seriously. I'm laughing because I started writing this book when I was 16 and I've got like 50 pages in it that my mum kept, right? And uh, I, I I read it a couple of years ago and I, I just thought, thank fuck I didn't finish that, you know, because some of the things in there are a bit too extreme and I'm like, right, okay, you know. There was a few bits and bobs in the book when I read, when I, when I read through it the, the second time when I got all finished. It was odd yeah. chapter, I just thought it's garbage and just skipped it. And yeah. there was a few bits I read back, I was quite surprised how good I thought it was, do you know what I mean? And, and the opposite. So a few I'm just like, I don't know where I was going with that one, this garbage, just delete. And there was other ones, it, it seemed to flow through you, do you know what I mean? I just seemed to be thinking, and it seemed to flow through me, it came from somewhere else at times, I've got to be honest. Yeah. But getting the idea, when I got the idea in my head about what like, this is going to be about, this kind of thing, I could type it all right, but that was, there was all sticking points where, I couldn't think about where is this going? Uh, what's this chapter going? What am I trying to actually say here? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was easy. To put, I found it quite easy to put myself in the shoes of the character. Yeah. Very similar to me, obviously. I remember the feelings and thoughts and descriptions and that kind of stuff. That was fairly easy for me. Um, but getting the idea to keep writing. And I'm, I'm working on another one at the moment. I think I've done four chapters. I've got a rough idea. Yeah. But I'm hoping the ideas will come as I keep writing. It'll evolve itself a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's done a bit more writing and he told me the, the best thing you could do is to keep connecting with manuscript. If you've not got an idea, don't leave the laptop shut and just wait the idea comes, get the laptop open, <laughs> keep typing. And you might go back to it and go, that's okay, I'll yeah. delete that. But yeah. keep connecting to it and it'll kind of come a bit. And I'm taking on board that advice and I'm just trying to have a bit of discipline to put a few on every week, you know? So he's kind of like, what, what, what would be the, the new one that you, you're writing about? What's, what's the theme? It's got to be, it's got to be in the nineties. It's got to right. be based more around the music scene, though. Right. Um, I, I'm going to introduce other characters, a female character, which right. I've done. Now. Um, I'm going to be a bit, about growing up again. Um, right. I, I, I like to keep the theme where it's about finding yourself. I find that stuff quite. It's a bit self-discovery for me, I suppose, because I quite like... See, because I'm in recovery, I've done a bit of um, self-examination. Yeah. I'm very interested in that kind of stuff. I'm very interested in looking back at life's path and seeing what would you've went down and how you're shaped to where you're shaped, that whole nature of the nurture kind of thing, and looking at my parents and looking at the impact they had on me. And I like to weave that through the story. Yeah. I say that's what I'm passionate about, but also weave in the themes of where I grew up, but the fashions and the music and the culture that was there as well, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think that's what I'm going to do in this one as well. Going back to... The, the, no, make a copy of the first. What's that, sorry? So not making it like a carbon copy of the first, right, but yeah. have similar themes. Yeah. So going back to the first one, once you finished it, what did you do next? Well, what I did was, I, I don't have a half yet, and then I printed half it off and I just stapled it together. I just read it in bed at night. So I read it in bed every night. So yeah, I just yeah. read it in bed at night as if it was just my current book I was reading. And when I got to the first half end, I thought, this is all right, it's worth finishing. So it kind of gave me a wee boost to finish it off. So when I got it finished off, I just sent it to the, maybe the top 12 publishers on Google who I kind of vetoed each one of them, made sure they were genuine, etc., and done a wee, a wee blob and just sent it off to them all. So I got a response for most of them. But see, if you're a first-time writer, yeah. um, this is my experience. Most yeah. of them's going to offer you a hide. 
print dealers some description would like you to pay towards the publishing or whatever it might be a self-publishing yeah. option. Yeah. And I've me being a bit wet behind the ears where I did a bit more research on it, but I didn't want to invest too much money in it because I thought I could sell 10 copies here. I just don't know how it's going to go. Do you know what I mean? You, there's yeah. the idea. If I knew how it was going to sell, I might have done it a bit different. So I might do it different next time. So I didn't pay a massive amount of money out, so I didn't take a massive gamble. Um, I got my mate to hand me with the photographs on the front just because his photographs are better, to be honest. They, they looked more fitting on the book. So yeah. I just sent it off to the top 10, top 10, 12 publishers and waited on the response, really. And you, you, which one, which publisher went with it? The guy's called Michael Higgins, I think it is. Okay. He's just an independent guy, um, yeah. quite a small company. A few of them said no, but I mean, some of them send you back an email within half an hour saying, I really like your book. We think it's fantastic. Um, if you give us £2,500, we will do X, Y, Z. You think you've read it in half an hour of you. So yeah. you, you kind of get to know it's a money-making scheme. And some of them are salesmen as well. Some yeah. of them will phone you three times in the next week and they'll offer you, look, I know I've said to you last week £2,000, but I really think the four grand deal would be better for you. Yeah. I mean, do you know this could be a movie? Or that, that kind of stuff. You think, sure. Do you know what I mean? You need to kind of be like, right, don't jump in there. They're, they're kind of relying on your desperation to have your book published. Yeah. Because if you're a bit naive like I was, you take the first phone call and think, they want my book, they want my book. How much do we really want it? But because you're a first-time author, we need two grand. And yeah. a lot of people go for that. And that might work for some people, do you know what I mean? But you know, we spent about 700 quid or something to get it out there. But it's, it's only on Amazon. Um, yeah. So it's, it's worked quite well. But I just kind of promoted it on social media. But I've had, I've had decent feedback on it. I don't just mean guys who relate to the fashion and the football stuff. Yeah. There are guys who are talking about the alcoholism side of things yeah. or the mental health aspects in it. Yeah. I think that's getting important in Scotland because the culture is guys don't generally talk that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Guys generally just push it on and just go to the pub and try and forget about it. So I think there's a generation out there who's going to put a lot of stuff in their head and they don't really get to talk about it with anybody. So it's dead valuable if they can read that and see, I'm not the only guys like that. There's loads out there like that. And yeah. since then we've started a men's group because it is well. So a conversation about the book has led to us starting a men's group. We've had about, I think there was about a dozen of there last week for the second week. A few guys in recovery, a few guys from various backgrounds. Yeah. And we've all started talking about where I was growing up. Here's how I felt, this is yeah. how I feel now, here are my struggles, um, this is the struggles I had to drink, here's the struggles with drugs, and we can look at my life patterns and have a bit of a deep, honest conversation. And yeah. some of the guys, I mean, I'm in recovery and so there's a few other guys, so I'm kind of used to that kind of talk, but a few of the guys who are unfamiliar with it, they've been kind of blown away, we, we walk them through, this is what I need in my life, do you know what I mean? I think men in Scotland in particular are dead guilty eh, not express themselves in that event, I mean, MDMA and ecstasy coming about in the 90s probably helped a little bit, let's be honest, right? That probably helped a little bit as soon as expressed yeah. my feelings. But thereafter, as you say, you were attracted to kind of hard men characters when you were young. Um, it's always seemed like the tough guys are the top of the food chain in Scotland. Yeah. And that's always the case, do you know what I mean? So that's yeah. when you grew up I think the generation before us, of father's generation, would be even more guilty of that, do you know, being having an inability to express themselves. So... I think what the book's done is people have read this and go, this is how I think. And some of the best reviews I've had, Phoenix have said, I tried to read it, but I was getting too paranoid when I was reading it, I had to put it aside. They were identifying it too much, and I thought, good, that's yeah. at least stringing up some sort of emotion in you, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it's opened a few doors for people to get these conversations on the go. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot, a lot of drugs is really not facing up to, you know, ecstasy or cocaine, whatever, is not facing up to what the real problem is. It's escapism mm. to to, yeah. to to push it to one side, deal with it another day. Mm. And obviously that day doesn't come because you then get into that cycle, which is what the book picks up on, you know. You, you're kind of like, you have the weekend, a couple of days recovery, and then you're back on it again the, the, the next weekend. And the the cycle just rolls on, and it's only when you get off the cycle when you realise, what have I been doing there? Which, which obviously is something that you did. Mm. You realise how much time you wasted on it and how much 
it takes up your whole week rather than just your weekend. As you say, you're, you're recovering on Monday, Tuesday, you don't feel great. Wednesday, you're getting together and then it's kind of back on that cycle again. And yeah. your life revolves around about that. And the longer you're living like that, it gets to a point where you're kind of walking about feeling paranoid half the time and your anxiety levels are through the roof. And the only time you get any respite for your own vapor, really, is yeah. when you're getting drunk. So you're getting drunk a few days, you're getting a bit of respite for the overthinking, the anxiety. And then when the alcohol's back out your system, that stuff comes back tenfold. And you need to kind of live with it for a few days until you manage to get a bit of respite for you. Think again, and back to the point we made at the start off when you're 12 or 13. Yeah. I can look back now and I can see there's a lot of guys just could drink quite socially. They went only maybe experimenting drugs, but then in their early 20s or whatever, they've got married and settled down and life's became very much the norm for them. Do you mean life's became quite healthy? Yeah. There's other guys like me, I can see where I was self-medicated in a lot of ways because I did suffer for stress or anxiety or I had some underlying issues there I wasn't resolving because it was about a turmoil and upbringing stuff like that so I can see how it goes way back um, any trauma you, you've no dealt with we're all self-medicating yeah so, and that goes I mean that goes deeper even in recovery where you look at shopping for example you, you maybe shop on your emotions exercise whatever it might be and if you're going to be if you're going to have a personality like that where you're chasing stuff you're probably better focusing on some as a bit more negative or less destructive, at least. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, do do you still go to the football? I every week. Every week, yeah. I have. I've had a season ticket for about twenty years again. I, I still go every week. I still love the whole thing. There's the bit about getting up my Saturday and picking what you're going to wear and what jacket you're going to put on. No, it's never really quite left me, if I'm honest. And I still love meeting up with the lads on a Saturday and go to the match. Um, like I said at the start, I'm still not a massive football fan, although I, I do love Motherwell, and obviously I like to see Motherwell winning, right? But to me, it's a it's part of a community. I've yeah. said many times that the, I love guys on the pitch in front is really just a focal point for all these guys to meet up at the weekend. And they were a bit older, we might meet someone and get a bite eat before the match and go up to the game and for 90 minutes shout a bit, and there's a bit of a giggle there, and then we go home and feel quite contented, and it brings a bit of camaraderie into my life. And, I don't know, it still gives me something that's a bit, allows me to indulge that male side of me a wee bit still. It's dead civilised these days, you know what I mean? A lot of people get the wrong impression because you grow the terraces when you're young, but you're now 50 and you're still continuing that because you dress a certain way and you go to football with a group of guys look that way, but majorities are quite old and quite civilised these days, to be honest with you, do you know what I mean? And if we go to all the games, we might hook up with the lads that have been in mobs when we were younger and the internet's connected a lot of different people with. So I've got friends feeling to different teams through Scotland and we'll hook up with them and we've maybe got away games and stuff like that. So yeah. the majority of time, it's quite civilised nowadays, do you know what I mean? That that could have been the, whether it was actually used or not, the, 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 the acid house scene or the house scene in Scotland kind of like brought football firms together to, to a degree, put them into yeah. in scenarios. You know, I remember being at the, uh, the Civic Centre one all night, nineteen ninety, and then there was, I was on the bus with loads of hips, and uh, there was a load from Rangers, and there was obviously the Motherwell lot there, you know, and it got a bit tense afterwards in the car park, but nothing happened, and everybody went away, everybody had a good night, you know, so that was like breaking down doors, if you know what I mean. I definitely did. I think that's the kind of. I mean, attendance at football at that point in time went way down. How I think just because people were were hitting the acid house scene and obviously the nature of ecstasy and all that it changed their mentality a wee bit and there was a short period but I think I tried to touch on this in the book a wee bit I remember going to the football about 91 with like long hair travel fox trainers on flared jeans smoking dope and try to go fighting at the football but you maybe got to dancing that night the two worlds kind of Badly mixed for a short period of time before you had to pick one, and most people moved on to go to Acid House and enjoy the club scene. That's when people got to know again, your world got bigger again because you're starting to meet people through all the country, and it was no safe to go to other places without getting any grief. And it, it became a different thing for a wee while. Do you know what I mean? Although the, the fashion element still maintained that they are within Lanarkshire for sure, still dressed a kind of football with the guys in Lanarkshire. Do. And if you went to Hangar 13 at a performance back then, everybody pretty much wore kind of football attire. Um, 
that kind of stuff. So we maintained that kind of look with other guys and moved on, but it definitely changed it for a good while, yeah. Yeah. So uh, where can you get the book from? Amazon. It's it's only available on Amazon at the moment anyway. So is is that is that one of those is that one of the deals where they print the books? They print they print the book to order effectively. Right, yeah. They don't, they, yeah. They don't have like a Away who's fully my books, do you know what I mean? I can buy someone as an author at a cut price, but then they printed my orders, so anybody goes on printing. I've got a wee portal I can look in how many prints are went at that day, stuff like that. So you can tell them that it's sold. It's, it's sold in six months, it's sold 650 copies, which I know it's, it's nowhere near Harry Potter or anything like that, but for my first attempt, I, I'm fairly happy with it, do you know what I mean? I hope if I, if I do a bit more promotional stuff in social media, podcasts, or whatever. It, it sells a bit better than that. And it's not about making a great deal of money for me. I'm never going to make a lot of money out of this. It's just about me building up a wee bit more of a profile if I do a bit more writing yeah. or I do some more podcasts or whatever it might be. Um, I just want the world to do a wee bit, a wee bit more for me, do you know, wherever it goes. It's kind of like the more you do something, the better you, the better you get at it. If you know what Certainly I mean, I, you, you just you know, and, and I always whether whether in bands or, or or what, I'm just like do as much music as you can. You know what I mean? Don't just just concentrate, do the music. You yeah. know what I mean? And just get it out there, what whichever format you want. And what you know, once it's out there, it's out there, and just do something else. Because the more you do it, the more you get better, the more you you pick up some kind of fan base. Well, you know? When I was when I was doing when I started writing the book, I did a bit. I, I don't know if you heard there, the magazine Scotland, the guys about Pan and Arrow. I yeah. did write a few articles for them as well, which helped boost my confidence for writing a wee bit because yeah. that stuff was good. Out. And I think I wasted the feedback as well. When guys are saying, "Oh, I read your article, it was all right," it's kind of giving you a wee bit of sense that I this stuff's been well received. It's all right. And I don't know if that comes from a kind of negative Scottish background or just my upbringing, but sometimes you need a wee bit of reassurance about it and. Yeah. That kind of makes any self doubt kind of be cost a wee bit, and you get a bit more confident about writing this stuff. Um, but just get to the keyboard again and just type away and get a bit more out there. But I made some dreadful mistakes on the first one, like there's some um, horrendous spelling mistakes in some bits, for example, right? But this, you can get away with that, you know what I mean? If, uh, if you look at Irving's writing, then you know it's uh, so dialect. Well, I quite like the fact that there was a to go back to your, your youth cult thing, there was a kind of punk walk attitude towards yeah. it in some respects. I was kind of winging it, but I kind of just wrote it myself, edited it myself, sent it in myself, and got my mate to take the photographs for the front cover. So there was, there was a bit of pride in that as well, how we didn't get guidance for anybody. I didn't get anybody giving me a nod in the right direction. I just had done it myself, and that was that. So yeah. the, the second attempt, I'll learn with the mistakes for that first one. I would yeah. hope it would be... Um, a bit better written. I can look at the mistakes I made in that and I can structure it a bit better and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think you can become obsessed with uh, typos, you yeah. know, to, to the point where it, it, it stops your creation. And, uh, mm. you know, yeah, it, 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 I'm, I'm a great believer. It's the same as doing music. If you've got a bum note in a recording, it's a bum note. You know what I mean? It's, that's part of the charm. If you know what I mean, and that, that's Aye. part of you. You know, that I've been with people who are just obsessed with getting the kick drum right, and it just goes on and on and on and on, and it's never ultimately right because they go back and try and change it a day later. You know, so you you, you can become focused on 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 not doing the creative side, and you know, spelling mistakes are part of the the, the creative side to a degree. Well, I'm know? reading that. I'm reading Rick Rubin's book right now. Yeah. He's just released a book about creativity, yeah. and he's kind of shown you how it inspires him to be creative and some of the pointers he's going on. It's quite fascinating stuff. Yeah. And I, I like it, like I said, when I started typing it, some of it just seemed to flow out of me. I, I didn't know where it came from. You know, you yeah. get a lot of musicians where they say, I wrote that song in 15 minutes, and you think it sounds quite an egotistical thing when some of the old Gallagher says that. But you can understand that a wee bit now. Yeah. Where it just seems to come from somewhere else, you're not really sure where it's coming from. Yeah. And if certain bits I wrote, I, I, I genuinely don't know where it came from. I just kind of wrote by a look back for. That's all right. I just kind of kept tight, but as if it kind of came from somewhere deeper inside me than my thinking brain, I feel like. And yeah. Vic Rubin talks a lot about that kind of stuff in that book. Yeah. And it, 
anybody who's doing any creative, know he's doing lots of podcasts about his book as well, and it's quite, it's really interesting stuff. He's obviously got a lot of insight in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but he, you know, when he came through, he, what he did was really revolutionary in the early eighties. You know, where, where talking about me, so I'd, I'd gone from punk in Livingston through to Edinburgh, my music was starting to change a bit. And then I, I hit Manchester, even though I still kind of like followed a few bands, uh, punk bands. Everybody was into electro, you know, everybody was into hip hop, you know, soul music. So you kind of like your, your, your musical taste changes. But if you listen back to a lot of that early electro, early hip hop, it was raw as anything, you know, basic as anything, but, it sounded really big, you know, which is what Rick did. You know, he 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 made simple recordings sound big. You know, mm. he, he gave it a big sound. You know, and that that that's to his credit at that point that you know he was behind so many revolutionary kind of like records or hip hop records in the the, the early mid eighties. I like stuff. I mean, I'm a big fan of acoustic music and stuff like that. I like stuff that's kind of stripped back and worn, just. Yeah. I, I think if you can say it with just a guitar and a voice, it'll yeah. sound a good song if I'm honest. I mean, I think if you can do it with a guitar and a voice, it's still a good song. It's yeah. a good song. Do you know what I mean? To me, as I said, though, when it comes down to music, it's about the lyrics for me. It, to me, it's like a, a story and song, whereas other guys like the beats, they like the vibe, whatever it might be. And I can appreciate that as well, obviously, right? But to me, it's about the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, I've all, I think I've always got uh, very much like my typos. I've always got the, the lyrics wrong whenever I start singing. You know what I mean? You know when you're singing away in a club and you're like, you, 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 you're just singing away and then a week later you realise you're singing the song, the wrong lyrics to the song, you know, and I, I think that that's always been me, you know. I was always kind of obsessed with that stuff from younger, but get the lyrics right. Yeah. That was the good memory for song lyrics, you know what I mean? I would always seek out what it is he's actually saying. And God, like you say, some of the songs I sang all my life, I'd get like, 20 years later, I'd realise it was one later. I'd always sound that I'd like to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ian McMillan, author no of The Boy with the Phone in His Side. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks again. Cheers.